Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Perovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. And I'm very excited that today my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, a professor and director of the Asia Nonproliferation Project at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, and really one of the world's best experts on nuclear nonproliferation issues. He's arms control wonk on social um, and that's also the name of his podcast, and he has actually two podcasts, and the other podcast, the new one, is The Reason We're Still Here. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So the reason I wanted to have you on is that there's a lot that's going on in the nuclear non-proliferation space, obviously with the Russian war in Ukraine. There's a lot of things happening in North Korea that you're tracking very closely with missile launches. Obviously, Iran continues to advance on the nuclear program. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is actually what's happening here in the United States. We're in the midst of a revamp of our nuclear deterrent. You've been pretty vocal on some of those issues. We have the the new ICBM program called Sentinel that I don't think you're a big fan of. So tell us why and what you think overall of our efforts to rebuild our nuclear arsenal. Well, you know, I I tend to think that Deterrence is a pretty important part of our national security structure. So I, I, I'm not uh, I'm not one to talk about disarmament a lot. Uh, at the same time, nuclear weapons are expensive, and the U.S. has a pretty substantial arsenal. And there's on the books a plan to essentially recapitalize that force on an almost one to one basis. And I think my frustration throughout this process, and this has now been going on for 15 years is the cost estimates have not been realistic and costs keep growing. And there's almost, I would argue, a refusal to make hard choices about what we have money for and what we don't. Uh, So, you know, I don't, I just don't see a lot of extra value in an ICBM force. And kind of frustratingly, there are like a lot of cheaper ways to achieve the same thing that keep getting pushed aside. So like my pet kind of peeve is the missiles that we put on submarines, those would work fine in silos. You know, there isn't really a technical reason that you couldn't double up and we're going to eventually have to replace those anyway. But, you know, it's like we we kind of refuse to do it for like the same reason that like the Air Force and the Navy and the Army have like different camouflage patterns, right? Like everybody wants their own thing. And I just, I just like don't think we can afford to do that. So yeah, Sentinel, I mean- But hold on a second. So, so, so- Traditionally, since the early days of the nuclear age, one of the things that everyone's talked about is that you needed the triad of nuclear weapons, that you need land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, you need a submarine-based launch force, and you needed bombers as well. And that would give you credible deterrent that if one of those forces was in danger or was somehow struck first, like the land-based missiles, for example, you always had a redundancy there. So why do you think that's no longer relevant? I mean, one thing I would say is that the justification of a triad came after we had the forces. So the there wasn't a, a moment, for example, where somebody sat down and said, oh, if I was going to design a force, I would design it with three legs. I would do it like this. We acquired these forces piecemeal and then kind of back justified them. Although everyone so, else is trying to copy that too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, once you do something, right, like you, you set the standard, it used to be the case that land-based ICBMs could do things that other forces couldn't. So there was a specific rationale. So, for example, uh, the accuracy of land-based missiles was initially considerably greater than uh, missiles aboard submarines. Uh, It was also the case that communications with submarines were considered a little iffy. 
early on, the range of the missiles on submarines was not as great. Uh, and so what we've seen, I would say, over the last 30 years is that submarine-based missiles have become more accurate, communications have become more assured, uh, the range is essentially unlimited. And so they, they've kind of eaten into the value space uh, previously occupied by land-based missiles. So I, you know, the, that I think the historical arguments were actually quite good in the moment. I, I just don't tend to think that they're they're true now. And so when you ask people to justify the ICBM force today, they they make different kinds of arguments that I just find less compelling. So like one is, uh, if you have 400 ICBMs, these are 400 aim points in the United States. And so an attacker would have to strike the United States as opposed to just attacking the submarines at sea or the bombers in the air. Now, I, I just don't find that persuasive because, you know, some of the submarines are in port uh, and the bombers are not in the air, right? The bombers are on the ground. And so I I feel like the as those rationales have evolved, at least to me, they have become less compelling at the price point of Sentinel. You know, that to me is very important. It's at the price point. I wouldn't just get rid of the ones we have now. But, you know, you're asking to, like, rebuy it. What about the idea that we needed for insurance that today the submarine force is very good? These uh, nuclear submarines are very quiet, hard to trace. But, you know, developments in sonar, other sensing technology could, you know, one day neutralize it. And it takes a long time to build these ICBMs, rebuild those silos. So if we don't have it now, it may be too late at some point in the future. Well, you know, I mean, I think that the insurance argument is a good one, and it's a good one to explore because we have all sorts of discussions in non-nuclear areas about, like, how much you want to insure, right? I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, my favorite example of this is uh, car insurance. Uh, you know, like, do you really want to insure the full value of your car um, because, you end up overpaying, right? And in a world of scarce defense resources, uh, you know, if you're over-insuring the nuclear force, then that's capability you don't have in other places. Uh, so, you know, I do, I'm a little skeptical of the way we approach insuring. At the same time, like, yes, there is some reasonable risk. So I do think that it would make sense to give ourselves the option of deploying sea-based missiles on the land. Um, I think it makes sense to retain uh, some of the infrastructure that we might use. Um, like I wouldn't uh, blow up the silos. Even even if the silos were sitting empty, I would retain them. I would probably spend money to keep them. Uh, and, you know, we should probably have, no, not we should probably, we should definitely have an incredibly robust research effort precisely on the kinds of technologies that would lead to the submarine force being vulnerable. Because if that happens, that is a significant sea change and we would want to A, anticipate it. And, you know, if, if it's going to happen, we'd like to be first. So, like, that's where I would rather spend that money. Okay, so let, let's talk about some of the specifics. So we have the Trident missile, nuclear tip missile, that is used in our Ohio-class submarines and also used uh, by the Brits on their submarines. And you're saying instead of developing a completely new missile to replace the Minuteman, that's the current land-based ICBM, the, the Sentinel program that we have the DOD working on, you'd use the Trident. Talk, talk a little bit about, yeah. about how that would work. Yeah, the downside of that is, you know, you have some risk that if the entire, if there, if a if a single problem emerges with the entire Trident missile force, um, then you do run that risk, right? And I, that's true. But most countries really only have a small number of missiles, and in fact, the um, 
there's usually a lot of commonality among them. So it's actually a pretty small trade space where given how similar um, the production origins of those systems are, it, it's pretty, it would be pretty unusual to have a problem develop in one and not the other, but like, whatever. Uh, the reality is, is that Trident, the D5, is a very long range missile. Uh, sometimes people say it doesn't have the range to reach the targets in Russia, but that's because the reported range is with uh, eight warheads, um, which is not what uh, not what we would load it out with. When you download to say four or five warheads, which is what the um, what the uh, what they go out with at sea, it's the range is actually quite sufficient, especially if you were to go below that. You know, it's it has a lot of advantages in that it's a proven system, right? It's it's got an excellent test record. It is extremely accurate. And originally, I mean, the original um, version we fielded in like uh, late seventies, right? So it's been around for a long time. Yeah, and, and we are ultimately going to replace this, right? So, you know, if to my mind, Trident replacement is going to be an absolutely crucial and important program, and that is at least where I would want to make sure that we have adequate resources, uh, you know, industrial base in order to do that, um, because that system will ultimately need replacing, and when that comes up. Um, that's truly going to be a capability. I don't think we can afford to live with that. Right. And, and the alternative, the Sentinel, it is it keeps getting increased in cost as those programs tend to do, right? And I think the, the number right now is somewhere around $130 billion, which is yeah. not pocket change, right? <laughs> it's uh, substantial over, over a I mean, number of years, though. But... We experienced this with MX. I actually, at the beginning of this in the Obama administration, I went back because the you know people were claiming we'd get Sentinel for like under $100 billion. And I was like, you know, just just inflation adjust the cost of MX and, you know, you know, it's going to be a lot. Yeah. And part of that cost is is the missile itself, obviously, a huge part of it. But there there needs to be a refurbishment of the existing silos. They're very, very old. Right. They're built in the, in the 60s and using all technology, although I have to say that as uh, someone who's done cyber for two decades of my life, I'm very nervous about moving uh, off sort of uh, yes. old 60s era computing that's not connected to anything to modern, presumably, you know, Windows based or something of that sort operating systems that we know have issues, yep. right? And they're much more complicated in nature. So I actually worry a lot more about nuclear command and control safety issues with the cyber risk, Me too. given this modernization. But but you, you would agree that at least portion of that money, even if you don't build a new missile, we have to spend on these new silos, right? Yeah. I, I mean, the missile itself is just the, you know, kind of the, the, the most interesting part of, of a, a broader weapon system that's embedded in infrastructure. And my, my sense is we almost always chronically underinvest in infrastructure and in particular in command and control, uh, which, you know, one of the reason I'm, I'm such a skeptic of so many of these programs is we will spend hundreds of billions of dollars on these systems. And when it comes time to design the command and control system, there will be no money left over and people are like, well, don't worry about it. You know, and it's like, no, that, that, I would much rather have a worse missile and a robust command and control system than the other way around. Um, but I like, you could just never get the Air Force to want to do that. And so it makes me a little bit skeptical, but yeah, absolutely. I think a one really powerful argument against buying Sentinel now is precisely that we're in this moment of rapid technological change. And I'm not sure 
if it happens that we decide we do need land-based missiles, I'm not sure what the rationale will be, and I'm not sure what the right modality will be. You know, it may be that we end up deciding that we don't want land-based missiles at all, but we want a much bigger submarine force, but we might decide we want land-based missiles, but that they have to be mobile, right? And then all the money we sink into silos... Uh, so that, that's an interesting point, right? Because our adversaries, Russia and, and North Korea in particular, are prioritizing a mobile launching force, right? Why haven't we done that? Uh, it was unpopular. Uh, you know, my... I, again... You study this stuff long enough, right? You get you get really uh, cynical. The reality is, is that in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the uh, requirements to support mobile missiles, basing them in the Western United States, were extremely unpopular with local ranchers in terms of just the land that would be consumed, the water that would be used, the disruption, you know, and, and these were not peace-loving hippies, right? These were like the Cliven Bundys of the era. And the, so the, these the, are the NIMBYs, though, not in my backyard, right? Yes, that's right. They're and but very conservative NIMBYs. And so when the Reagan administration inherited from the Carter administration this plan to do this you know, massive deployment of mobile missiles, it didn't matter how conservative or how hawkish rather Reagan was. He was he was a good politician, right? He was not going to serially alienate his base. Um, and so the Reagan administration went through a series of studies where when you did it analytically, you were like, the best thing to do is to make these things mobile. And then that answer would come back. And the Reagan people would be like, no, the best thing to do is get reelected. So do the study again. Uh, and that's ultimately why we ended up putting the MX, a system that was supposed to be mobile, into silos. And when we started looking at the revitalization effort under Obama, no one bothered to look at the mobile issue again, because, you know, you would, you would expect a Democratic president would care a lot less about these conservative states that he would not win anyway. Yeah, you know, I think that the politics of this are such that the services just wanted to run everything back, right? The Air Force wanted new missiles to go in the same silos, and they wanted, um, you know, bombers to replace uh, the bombers we had. Similarly, you know, the Navy just wanted replacement submarines. It isn't the case, I think, that there is really anybody who sits in the bureaucracy and designs a system from the ground. I mean, I remember I had an argument in the Obama administration with uh, a person who uh, is sort of more enthusiastic about bigger nuclear forces than I am. And we were talking about whether to retire a certain system. And we both agreed it was useless. But my argument was it's useless and I don't want to spend the money on maintaining it and, and the training time for the, the, the forces to be able to use it. And, and he said something interesting. He said, if we retire it, we'll never get it back. Politically, once it's gone, it will be impossible to resurrect. And I might want it someday. And I think that was a really great, I think, insight. I don't think it's a disreputable opinion he had. It's you're never building the force from the ground up, right? You're modifying what you have. And there's sort of this enormous lock-in that happens. And so I am just really reluctant to spend $130 billion. And it's going to be more than that, right? on building a force that I think is inferior to the alternatives and which may be very vulnerable to technological change. So I just, boy, it's a lot of money to spend right now on a thing I don't necessarily I know I need when, you know, like there is stuff we need. You know, like we are about to run an arms race with the Russians and the Chinese. So like we are going to have to invest in capability. And, you know, you are the missile expert, but... 
do we actually need to replace the Minuteman? I mean, you know, is there some refurbishments we can do? Do we need to build a new missile from scratch? It's served us well for so many yeah. decades. Can it go for another four decades? I mean, you know, I think you would want to rebuild the solid motors, right? Because the solid motors age and there have been, you know, the actually the solid motors that are deployed have been rebuilt. So it's hard to know because... There are these technical arguments that say, well, we can't really rebuild them anymore. But because uh, the factories are shut down or? Well, no. I mean, this is a funny thing. Know that, you know, D5 production line was open until recently. Um, I think finally it is shut down now. Um, but no, because the space launch uh, systems the U.S. makes, uh, solid propellant missiles, you know, they're basically the, they're, they really have the same design heritage. So you know, I think the the reality is, is often, I, in my experience, the reason that people say you can't life extend things or do partial replacements is because they want to do the bigger, better thing. And it becomes very hard to argue with the company when it says like, look, I know you can't do that. And that's like, I actually think we can probably, but you just don't want to, but you are the technical experts. And so if you refuse to admit it can be done, like you do kind of have me stuck. Right. But and I, I can imagine you could run a competitive bidding process of, yeah. you know, let's look at the two options. That's what you would do in the private sector, right? Here's a new missile. Here's like refurbishing the existing one. And let's look at what's faster and cheaper. And so I mean, forth. one thing that's been really frustrating about this process is the extent to which the arguments seem to move and change. So the first time I raised this with the Obama administration, I got back a serious answer like, oh, well, uh, the D5 won't fit in existing silos. And I was like, yes, yes, it will. I know this because we put the Minuteman in, I mean, the uh, the MX, the Peacekeeper in the existing silos. It's big and they do fit. And then it was like, well, it doesn't have the range. And so then, you know, you calculate the range and like you're calculating with a warheads. It's actually going to be less than that. And it does have the range. Um, and then the last argument I heard before I finally got really tired of this was, well, you know, it's heavier and so we would have to regrade and repair the roads around the silo. <laughs> I think we can, we know how to do that. I mean, like I, you know, the farmers of North Dakota and Wyoming are going to be fine with new roads. Like, I think, you know, I just, I think the real answer is they don't want to do it. And yeah. again, if we lived in a world of infinite resources, I get it. Um, I just, we don't. And, and, I just, it's really hard for me to think that we are in a position at this moment to know what we're going to need. I, I will give you a perfect example of this. If we were to use the land-based ICBMs from the United States against China, they have to overfly Russia. I do not want to do that. That seems like not a great idea. And I, you know, DOD sort of assures us like, oh, well, is that Russians because would... you have to take the Northern path? Can you yes. fly over the South, the Southern pole? It's too far over the South. Mm. I, you know, like, ah, gee, I don't know. That seems like not a great idea to me. And so if we're really trying to imagine, like, what kind of deterrent are we going to need against China's forces? We, A, don't know what China's forces are going to look like because they're in a period of really rapid change. And it's, like, really not clear to me that North Pole trajectories are the best way to go. Um, and so does that mean, like, Maybe we need more submarines. Maybe we need uh, intermediate range missiles. Like, I just, you know, like, I don't know. And part of the reason I don't know is because 
China's force isn't really in being. So again, you know, it's asking for a huge sum of money um, to guard against a future where I'm just very unclear what what we're going to need. Well, let's talk about the intermediate range ballistic missiles yeah. because the Trump administration pulled out of the treaty in part because, uh, in large part, because of the concerns around China. Obviously, there's uh, questions about whether Russia was cheating on this as well. But, you know, right now we're trying to build up that arsenal, conventional arsenal. Do you think we should be considering nuclear tip intercontinental ballistic missiles again? Um, you mean intermediate range ballistic in, missiles? In, sorry, yeah. intermediate yeah. range ballistic missiles. Um, you know, I think it, it, yes. I mean, I'm not sure, like Sentinel, I am not sure that's the answer I would land on. But there are these kind of really interesting questions about what kind of extended deterrence we're going to be trying to do and what plausible strategies for uh, the conventional defense of our allies looks like and how nuclear weapons factor into that. So, um, because we, you know, we don't I, just worry about Russia and even China anymore, right? North Korea's arsenal exactly. is growing significantly. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen with Iran? So you need a range of options. Yes. And I really, I mean, I really do take a position like I feel like it is just much too uncertain. I know, I know that we are going to want conventionally armed intermediate range missiles. You know, our allies are building those in pretty large numbers right now. I think that horse is out of the barn. I would like to have avoided this outcome, um, but I actually was at a meeting in Berlin and it was a meeting on uh, missile proliferation. And uh, I, I was like, you know, here I am, the, you know, the arms control guy. And I'm like, actually, I think missile proliferation now is good, right? And it's, it was bad when like North Korea and China and everybody else was doing it. But, you know, like... Now that it's our allies, we should encourage I mean, that, right? You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? I, you know, like I... Would I like to ban all ballistic missiles on the Korean peninsula? Yes. But in a situation where North Korea has them, South Korea needs to have them too. That then raises questions about, well, what do you want to use those missiles for? How many of them do you need? And how would that interact with a nuclear capability, right? So you could argue it might be very inexpensive to have a dual capability, but you also run into some signaling concerns, right? Or the possibility of something being misinterpreted. And so I think... If you can't answer those questions, then it, it becomes really hard to know. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I, Guam is a great example where every time we talk about putting uh, intermediate range missiles in the Pacific, people are like, put them on Guam. And it's like, okay, Guam's in a nice spot, but it's like not very big, right? Small, yeah. And vulnerable. So, yes. So, you know, again, I, I, I tend, I tend to want to put things to sea. I mean, that just tends to be where I end up. Um, and then, you know, one can like kind of kind of sort things out. But, you know, there may be things that land-based ballistic missiles can do. Yeah. I think we do have to worry about the advancements in sensing in the ocean. And, you know, I think we're coming to an end most likely of the diesel submarines because of the improvements in satellite tracking, right? And with diesels, you have to come up for air very frequently. But even if you're underwater for long periods of time, you could see how that force, you know, in 10, 15 years could be much more vulnerable than it is today. Well, I mean, AI is going to have a really important effect on processing the data, right? And we just, I think at this point, we don't know how efficient it's, it's going to be. So, yeah. but I, I mean, you know, the example I always think of is, um, I don't know if you saw the Beatles documentary mm -hmm. where 
you you have these like really muddy tapes and now using AI, you're able to very clearly pull out, oh, here's Paul McCartney's bass, right? Here's just Ringo's drums and the computer's capable of doing that. Like, well, if you can pull out like, here's the sound of the US submarine, that's that's a risk. Could, so, could, you know. Change everything. So let me ask you about our adversaries for a moment. So China, let's yeah. talk about it, right? They're going from 300 to at least 1,000 weapons and right. could be even more. There's some people that think that they actually want to match us in numbers and then you know, open up a conversation about arms control. Where, where do you see things going? There's been you know, some interesting stories lately about the corruption mm-hmm. in the missile force and some of the firings. Uh, I think the Russians look at corruption in China and say, yeah, that's cute. So, so people that uh, sort of overinvest in, in, worrying, in uh, thinking that China is so corrupt that it can't do things should actually look at what's happening with Ukraine, with Russia, and the fact that a very corrupt force can still deliver a significant punch and worry about Chinese capabilities, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I tend to think domestic politics is the tail that's wagging the dog. So when I look at the history of U.S. defense procurement, or I look at the decisions the Soviet Union made, or I actually look at the history of China's decisions, they're really embedded in specific political contexts of the moment. And so I just, I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks that the Chinese sit there and think like, oh, here's the right number. I think the rocket force thinks I would like more. And whatever that number is, when you get it, the rocket force would be like, I would like even more. Uh, And so I think we don't know where that process is going to end. Do you you think part of it is looking at the United States saying we want to be an equal, United States has X, we should have X? Well, yes. And I I mean, I think that that's a, it's an important thing to keep in mind about political leaders, which is they're not like you or I. They're not people who care deeply about strategic studies. Uh, You know, political leaders believe really simple things like it's better to be strong than weak. More is better than fewer. I shouldn't have less than my opponent. So the slogans, right? Campaign slogans. But I think I think that's how politicians think. I I just don't think there's more depth there. Or if there is, it's pretty rare. Uh, And so this the rocket force in China is going to be saying things like, well, we want more. And they're going to have a, a variety of arguments available to them. And those arguments are going to be things like, why should we have less? It's better to be strong. I think that resonates with this particular leadership. But they're also going to have a budget, right? And and I think things like corruption are real. And corruption is real in terms of driving force structure. You know, like, we just see a very high-profile firing of the entire senior leadership of the rocket force for corruption. Like, my guess is 50 years from now, we'll discover that the story of the silos and the expansion is partly a story about strategic choices, but it is also going to partly be a story about some people who got real rich. Oh, absolutely. As with, so now, with everything you know, in China. I don't know. But, but how much do you actually worry about this? Because I, I kind of have the view of 300 warheads is a big enough problem that going to 1,000 or 2,000 does not really change anything for us. And by the way, if they're going to spend tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on that, they're probably not going to have enough to spend it on an amphibious invasion fleet and other things. And that's a good thing for us. Oh, I am I am fundamentally a minimum deterrence person. And the reason I'm a minimum deterrence person is because I believe deterrence by punishment works. Uh, you know, I'm not... Uh, 
I don't I don't think leaders sit down and carefully calculate, you know, well, at the end of the nuclear war, you know, this is where we'll be, this is where they'll be. Like, I think there there is real terror in the destruction that nuclear weapons would wreak and uh, the havoc they would wreak. And that that's pretty insensitive to numbers. You know, I just think Vladimir Putin is totally insensitive to whether you drop 10, 100 or 1,000 nuclear weapons on, on Russia. Like he's, those are all, I think to him, impossibly horrible futures to imagine. And I think that's- And for us too, right? Whether it's one or a hundred, yeah? Absolutely. So that's why I tend to think that when you see buildups, they're not deeply strategic. They're motivated by this other kind of logic. And to the extent that it's suboptimal, like, yeah, it's great. Because, I mean, I I remember I had an argument with a, a commander of US Strategic Command where I was talking about how important it would be to be able to defend the Baltics from Russian aggression purely conventionally. And he was like, well, do you know how expensive that would be? And I was like, yes, but that is worth doing. Like, I like I want to, you know, like, give me my $130 billion for Sentinel and, you know, let me arm Estonia to the teeth. Um, because I think that's a fight we could prevail in. And, and that would be worth doing. And honestly, a small nuclear arsenal married with a very capable conventional force, I think would probably maximize deterrence much more than a a larger arsenal where you're experiencing diminishing returns and you're doing so by starving your conventional forces. It's a good point because the ultimate dilemma with the nuclear deterrent is that you're spending a lot of money on something that you hope you will never actually use, right? And the more you can build dual-use capabilities that you can use conventionally, that helps you uh, with you know, real problems that uh, yes. you may solve. Not not that nuclear threat is not a real problem, but no, hopefully but one that you can deter. Nuclear weapons have not been used very often, right? And so the number of people killed in nuclear wars is, you know, relatively small compared to the number of people killed in, you know, war wars. I And I do believe in deterrence. I just think that you don't want to pay, you don't want to overpay for deterrence that you are basically going to get at 300 warheads. If it, if it doesn't, if a thousand or three thousand or thirty thousand warheads doesn't materially change your deterrent benefit, um, you you don't want to buy that. All right, so let's talk about North Korea. You and your team spent a lot of time tracking North Korean missile launches, the preparations, as well as the nuclear tests and, and nuclear test sites. What is going on with North Korea right now? There's a lot of concern. There's uh, a piece that was written by two researchers saying that North Korea is preparing to go to war soon because Kim Jong-un is talking about how the South and the North are different countries and will never be unified. And he's uh, taken down the unification ministry and famously taken down the, uh, the what is it, the statue of unification that they have. Right, it's in, an arch. A, an arch, an arch, yeah, in, in, uh, in North Korea. So what is going on there with the missiles and what's your view on the overall strategic situation? Uh, so uh, the... Two authors are Sig Hecker and Bob Carlin, who are my colleagues at the Middlebury Institute. Um, I I disagree with them. Uh, I actually think that Kim Jong-un's rejection of unification is, in in a very strange way, a good thing, because he was very explicit in rejecting unification. Uh, He also rejected the use of force to unify the peninsula. Uh, Now... I want to be clear. He was not like super cuddly about this, right? He said that he that North Korea would not initiate a war, would not use force, but made it clear that if the U.S. used force, 
uh, you know, they were going to nuke the living crap out of South Korea, Japan, and the United States. So it was, uh, it was definitely not warm and fuzzy. But it, I think if you look at the situation, um, where North Korea is at the moment is that regime has been really struggling. And, and the Kim family wants to hold on to power. Uh, Kim wants to eventually pass power down to his kids. And the unification stuff, I think, for them is a distraction, right? They want to build an argument for a North Korea that lives under the Kims forever. Um, and so weirdly, I, I won't rule out North Korean provocations because they do those for internal political reasons. And we never have any, at least I never see any warning when they're coming. But, but you um, know, Kim Jong-un has actually been much more cautious yes, than his yes. dad, right? I mean, yes, his much, dad much. shelled islands, he sunk a yes. frigate. He hasn't done any of that. I mean, there's been tests, but he hasn't killed any That's South right. Koreans. Well, and a lot of people think that the that 2010 was so dangerous precisely because there were internal domestic politics that were driving them. And I presume Kim's decision to renounce reunification reflects some kind of political situation he's managing. Uh, but yes, he's been much more cautious. It's funny because he's not a cautious person. You know, when he perceived a Chinese threat in the form of his uncle and half-brother, he had them murdered. Like, he's not a, you know... Yeah, uh, but that's what you do in the family, right? That's that's like yeah, well, <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not weak or he's not timid. Um, but at the same but time, killing his uncle does not endanger his rule. Going to war with South Korea and presumably right. America. I think he's very calculated. Yes, I think he, I actually think he's probably quite clever uh, and, and pretty calculating and has been in terms of the use of violence restrained. And I do think, you know, he went out of his way um, both to meet with Trump. I mean, I, like he genuinely wanted some kind of deliverable. Three, three times. Yep. And when he renounced reunification as a goal, again, went out of his way to say, we will not initiate a war. You know, so he's, he has a strategy. And honestly, I think it's working pretty well for him because the sanctions regime has two giant holes in it, right? One in China and one in Russia. And the strategy of having invested heavily in North Korea's defense industry is currently paying off incredibly for him uh it's not just watching i mean the, the fact this, that he's reversed yeah. decades yes. of models of buying arms from russia and now he's selling arms yes. for, to russia is, is quite incredible we can we can watch not only the missiles being shipped out of north korea we can watch all the payment in the form of goods coming in to north korea so in a stroke he has given himself a source of hard currency a source of goods to help the economy uh, and, a, and, a, and a, a close political relationship uh, with one of his two big neighbors. And I, you know, I think he'll play those two off against one another. Uh, He's you know, very like, weary of China, right? Than has so been. I would be. I mean, yeah. I think that's why he had his, his uncle and half brother murdered. Is he worried that the Chinese would use them to replace him? So, Do you know, he's... I, I, like, I'm sorry, I think the guy has, you know, played the situation pretty wisely. If I were in his position, I'd be dead. So are you concerned that beyond currency that he may be getting from Russia, he's also getting weapons technology and primarily yeah. in the missile space, maybe even the nuclear space? Is that a concern for you? Yes. I mean, Putin went out of his way to signal that those kinds of uh, 
that sort of assistance would be made available, right? They took him to a number of armaments factories. They um, they walked him around the space center. Uh, you know, I I think that was a really clear signal that. Um, while North Korea has indigenized a lot of these capabilities in areas where they are struggling, uh, Russia would certainly consider transferring technology. And so I think Do you think yeah, that right, extends we, even to the nuclear systems. Well, it's an interesting question whether the North Koreans would want that help hmm. um, in the sense that. I think the North Koreans are going to be a little bit wary about letting foreigners touch the most sensitive things. Uh, but certainly for missiles and space launchers, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think combat aircraft is an area where the North Koreans are like really woeful. Um, so I, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of... The problem Russian is that Russia is going to be challenged in providing it because they have their own needs right. and their own manufacturing well, problems. So this is the Egypt deal. This is how North Korea got a missile program in the first place, which is Egypt had a bunch of Scud missiles that the Soviets would no longer service because uh, Camp David, Egypt had switched sides in the Cold War. And so the Egyptians exported the missiles to North Korea, which reverse engineered them, and then came back and provided services to the Egyptians. So I think, you know, the way I think of it is, Imagine how we could have stopped that if we had just sold missiles to Egypt, right? Yes. I, I, no good deed goes unpunished. A, a consequence of Camp David was we re-kitted the Egyptian army with Western gear, and they were like super excited about it. We chose not to give them missiles um, for, I think, political reasons involving Israel, but also uh, for non-proliferation reasons in general, although I think the Israel argument was probably more important. Um, and, and the consequence of that was North Korea's missile program and then all of North Korea's missile sales. So Egypt, honestly, Israel would have been better off if we had sold Egypt missiles and skipped the whole Because North Korea. North Korea then helped Iran, of course. That's right. And Syria. Yeah. And Yemen. So yeah. like, yeah, that was not, I mean, obviously like life is long and things like surprise you. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't fault policymakers for not being clairvoyant, but yeah, no, no good deed goes unpunished. So I, I think the Russians are probably going to rely on the North Koreans as, a, as you know, inexpensive labor. And so if you transfer a capability to the North Koreans and they indigenize it and they produce cheap knockoffs in large quantity, like that's an expansion of the Russian defense industrial base. Uh, yeah, and a couple of things that struck me as really strange about that argument that he's preparing to go to war. I, I posted this on on the X is, you know, if you're preparing for war, would you really ship a million or potentially even more no. shells, artillery shells, to Russia? Right at the no, time no. when you, you would really need it, as as That's we've right. seen in Ukraine, you could never have enough. So so that struck me as as strange. And then disbanding the unification ministry. Particularly if you've come to the conclusion that this is never happening, this is a big bureaucracy you have to pay for at the time when budgets are constrained. Would you rather spend it on missiles and the nuclear program or a bunch of bureaucrats sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for unification that's never going to come? Yeah. And again, you know, like if you were planning to reunify the peninsula by force, you would need a reunification ministry, right? I mean, that's true. That's a good point. You would have to plan for like, I mean, well, I don't know. We've invaded countries without a plan. So maybe you don't have to, but it's it's best practices to plan for the day after the war. <laughs> that's 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 very, very accurate. One question I have for you, and you know, it's probably impossible to know, but 
when you see these shipments now of missiles going to Russia, uh, North Korean missiles, and they're starting to use them in significant quantities, you know, one of the challenges that the Russians have had is that their own production can't keep up with the expansion of those missiles in Ukraine. Do you think the North Koreans can, or will they quickly run out of their own inventories too? And obviously they, they can't ship everything they have to Russia because they need their own, their own deterrent systems. Yeah, well, one thing we're seeing is a significant expansion of factory space. So over the last couple of years leading up to this, we watched North Korea build out all of the factories that they use for munitions production. So we're seeing all kinds of new buildings, uh, new tunneling, like it's just more floor space. So did that start after the war in Ukraine or did that? No, it started before. There was a really a kind of a stunning ramp up in investment. Uh, where just factories all got bigger. They got new buildings. And so we never we never really got to the point where we were comfortable with what the throughput was because it was such a change. Uh, and North Korea has walked us through some factories, but they don't, what they show us doesn't always make sense. And so it can be very hard to assess. Like, What do you mean example, by that? Well, so the February 11th factory, which is where they make uh, the short-range ballistic missiles Russia's using, they built two large new buildings and when they about maybe two years ago. And when Kim Jong-un went in them, the two buildings appeared to have the same purpose. They were for the final assembly of missiles being produced underground. Not components. Right. However, the buildings are not the same. So why would you build two radically different buildings for the same purpose? So that just doesn't make sense. You know, like one has like tool lockers. So that makes sense for final assembly. Like that's where the workers put their tools. But the other one doesn't have tool lockers in it. So like what? The workers go to the one building, they get their tools, and then they walk across the yard. Like, it's fascinating. No, like they're not. We don't think they're being completely honest with us about their process. And so we have questions about where certain activities are taking place. And so, well, this is not a question of honesty because they're not letting us in, right? This is a propaganda campaign when he goes in and they photograph it. So it makes sense that part of it is uh, misinformation. Yes. Uh, There's a misinformation element to it. And, you know, and it sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's, I I don't want to call it innocent misinformation, but sometimes he tours something before it's done. So you walk through and it's empty. And it's not that they cleared it out. It's that they hadn't filled it yet. Um, and it may be that they are, you know, it may be that because of the uh, sales to Russia, maybe they were space constrained and they had to repurpose the facility from one thing to another. You know, I just, we just don't know. But the, the problem is we never got a good baseline before we saw this, these sales. But, you know, obviously it's hard to estimate, but you, you, you basically what I'm hearing from you is you, you, you're implying that it's plausible that they can keep up with the yeah. rates of missiles that they're shipping to. Yeah, to, I mean, the they're Russians. building just, you know, uh, we, we had actually identified the uh, factory where they make anti-tank guided missiles, which uh, was, we were, it was pretty lucky. And they have, uh, you know, increased the size of that by like four or five times in the last five years. Wow. So, and yeah. 
you know, one of the big efforts with Russia since they, they invaded Ukraine was sanctions to try to stop flow of machinery and tools and components to these programs. Obviously, you can't stop at all, but there's the thinking that we at least slowed them down. Do you think that we can have any impact on North Korea? I mean, obviously, we already have very stringent sanctions regimes, but yeah. where are they getting the components? Where are they getting the tooling for all of this? Yeah, I think we can't. I think we did slow them down. And it was probably worth doing. But, you know, it, it, like anything you do where you buy time, you have to have a plan. Like, what am I like? OK, I bought myself 10 years. What do I do with the 10 years? And if the answer is I, I spent the 10 years complaining about how awful the North Koreans are, it's like, well, OK, the 10 years is up. Um, you know, we one thing we do is we try to assess the equipment we see in the factories. And uh, so, for example, the airframes for those short range ballistic missiles are metal and they're made on flow forming machines. And we observe that North Korea has, over the last 30 years, invested a lot of money in developing a domestic capacity for flow forming. And all the flow forming machines we see at missile facilities aren't imported. They look domestic to us. And so, you know, I mean, that's not certain, but it doesn't look like a foreign machine. North That's Korea very different from Russia, where virtually everything is imported from a tooling yes. perspective. Yes. In fact, there's just a, a case where I think two German companies yes. uh, were accused of uh, selling maybe CNC machine tools to an intermediary, I think, in Turkey. I could I have the well, details we're, we're, wrong. We, but... We've published a lot of this on, uh, on this in Silverado, that there's machines coming from South Korea, from Taiwan, from Germany. Absolutely. The Russians are, are know, buying a lot of that. A lot of those machines are available used. There's yeah. a whole secondary market. And part of the problem is missiles are not new. You know, like, I think we have this idea of them as being high tech, but a missile from the 1970s, which is not terribly high tech, will still kill you dead. And so a lot of the machines we see in North Korea are kind of the ones that are imported, at least, were imported 20, 25 years ago. And as long as they could service them, they're, they're great. All right, last question, Jeffrey. We seem to be entering a new age in nuclear nonproliferation, right? We've been able to keep this genie mostly in the bottle since the signing of the nonproliferation treaty back in the early 70s. And yes, we had India and Pakistan that developed nuclear weapons uh, during that time and South Africa that did and then later dismantled them. But now things seem to be changing really everywhere, right? Both in North Korea, uh, not just becoming a nuclear state, but building significant capability, Iran on a threshold that they could literally step over at any moment, the buildup in China, Russia making noise about potentially resuming testing. Even in the US, you, you've uh, posted on, on, on uh, social that there's a lot of activity happening at our test sites, even though claim we don't want to test first. So where do you see the next 20, 30 years here? Are we entering a really, really dangerous period here where you're going to see even more proliferation? Yes, I think this is one of those transitional periods. I'm not a pessimist in the sense that sometimes the transitions work out okay and sometimes they don't. And I mean, you whatever, you pay your money and take your chances. Uh, but things are really different. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we have quite embraced the degree of change that we're we're looking at you know i uh 
I will say, uh, in, the, in the defense of, uh, of the Nevada national security site, uh, you know, they're very transparent about what they're doing. And, I think you came and, out and actually saw it recently, right? Or, or a team. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 they brought a bunch of us on a visit and, you know, showed us all the things that were going on. Uh, and I would love for Russia and China to do the same. Um, you know, my sense, though, is that we're generally not sort of looking squarely at how quickly things are changing. Um, and that's, that's eventually we're going to, we're going to realize it. We're probably going to overreact. I mean, that's what we always do, right? We're, we're like too slow, too slow. And then it's like too much. Um, but yeah, you know, the reality is, is that the technology to build nuclear weapons and missiles is so much easier to get, right? There is this lowering of the barrier to entry. And, and so our tools are changing. And our tools are increasingly less like, I'm going to not let you have it. And they're more like, well, here's what I could do for you instead. You know, and that's a that's a different approach. And I think, you know, we've already seen it on the missile side. It's pretty much failed on the missile side. Uh, you know, we have a missile. We have Houthis launching missiles and shutting down trade in Red Sea, right? It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the prospects of stopping missile proliferation are, I would, I would argue, over. Now, there might be some high-end capabilities we can restrict, and that's worth doing. But again, we're buying time. And like, what are you going to do with the time? And so I think that should be a warning, right? If North Korea can do it, right? if, if North Korea can build nuclear weapons and become a major weapons supplier to Russia... I mean, there just there aren't a lot of countries in the world that are poorer than North Korea. So yeah, it's a really different era, and I think we just have not squarely looked in the face. Um, how how I mean, this is going to be scary. So so there's this undercurrent of debate that always happens when we're talking about North Korea and even China Taiwan, and the the simplistic argument is always, well, we should just let South Korea get nuclear weapons or Japan, you know, or Taiwan, which yeah. would be, you know, clearly a red line for, for China and, and a impetus for them to invade before that capability gets deployed. And, you know, my argument has always been more proliferation is not good, even if it's amongst allies, because even allies you don't control and that makes the world more dangerous. But do you think we should be starting to rethink that? And yeah, if- I don't. And the reason I don't is, I think you see a neat illustration in this in the form of Israel. Israel has nuclear weapons, and Israel does not want Iran to get them. And I, I get that. I understand that emotionally, viscerally. Like, I, I get it. Uh, but that also means you don't believe in deterrence. You know, if, if, if Israel has nuclear weapons and it still regards Iran getting them as a threat... That means that it it does not believe its nuclear weapons will offset that threat. Well, hold on a second. There's a more yeah. nuanced argument in that they could believe that Iran would not launch nuclear weapons, but the argument could be that they would have a freer hand. That's exactly in the region, right. right. But but I mean that's that is exactly my point to the South Koreans, which is a nuclear armed North Korea has a freer hand to be aggressive in the way they were in 2010. South Korea getting nuclear weapons doesn't end up deterring that. Right. And so that's the reason I don't favor allied proliferation is the core deterrence mission. I think you can extend that deterrence from the U.S. And, you know, I, like I'm sympathetic to the French argument that they think that their deterrence a little better because it's their own. But 
But there is a credibility issue of are you willing no. to compromise Washington for Seoul or Tokyo it's a, it's, or whatever? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, and I understand the French argument that, you know, they're not willing to take that chance. The Germans were. And I, you know, I tend to think that on balance, um, the German solution is is a little better because more nuclear weapons in the world and more nuclear power is just at least better for the world may, may not be better for Germany. Right. Yeah. Although, you know, the, the ambient, you know, I actually think that ambient risk probably does compound, you know, uh, if, if, if a, it, it's, it's great if you're like one of like two or three, but if you're one of like 30 or 40, it may not be so great. Right. So I, I, I just, I don't think it, I don't think national nuclear programs are that much better than extended deterrence. I think they might be a little better. And it goes back to pretty much everything I've said, which is it's really hard to properly price this stuff. And so like, mm, yeah, okay. So instead of extended deterrence, you get your own deterrent. So you like, that's like, like whatever, maybe 10% better, but now the world is like 50% more dangerous. Like, I, you know, we, I don't... we also forget, I mean, everyone kind of talks about Cuban Missile Crisis as, as if that was the only time when we came yeah. close to nuclear conflict. Obviously, East Berlin was even even uh, worse, West Berlin crisis a year earlier. But, you know, during the Korean War, there were real debates in the Truman administration about whether to use nuclear weapons, right? Yes. And, you know, that Eisenhower was decided he would if armistice negotiations broke down. I don't know if he had gone through with it, but, you know, on paper, they decided they would. Yeah. So that's sort of the quote unquote rational Americans in the early stages of having nuclear weapons. Would we feel comfortable with uh, an ally that just got them, that they would be very rational and would say, no, we will never use them first? Uh, you know, it, it gets really dangerous, right? And, and you know, sometimes your friends stop being your friends. You know, we... We still have nuclear weapons sitting in, in Turkey and our relationship with Turkey is, you know, I mean, the, you know, the Facebook relationship status is, you know, it's complicated, right? So well, look at Iran, right? The, the Shah was building a nuclear yes. program. We, we were helping him in the early stages of that. So Israel attempted to sell missiles to the Shah in the late 1970s. I mean, they, you literally could have had a situation where Israeli missiles would have shown up in crates. And then the Shah would have been overthrown and the Iranians would have turned around and, you know, pointed those right back. So I just, I'm not, I'm not unsympathetic to the French argument that they're better off with their own. But I think when I look at alliance management and global security broadly, I think we are all better off at a, at a lower number of nuclear powers, particularly if the U.S. can credibly extend deterrence, which, you know, we have to do. And, you know, that requires some policy choices. Jeffrey, it is always so uplifting to talk to you every single time uh, on, on these issues. We'll probably issues. get a muddle through. Yes. Uh, well, and uh, you have a terrific podcast on that, the reason we're still here. Uh, and hopefully that reason will remain for many, many centuries, um, millennia, perhaps. Um, and Arms Control Wonk, another great podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. It was great to talk to you. Oh, no.